Hello, lovely neighborhood. I hope you're having a wonderful start to the year. As you know, we're taking a couple of weeks break from the show to recover from the madness of 2020, but also to implement one of the biggest lessons we had from last year, which is to every now and then take a moment to step back, take a bird's eye view and just have a look at what's working, what isn't working, what you want more of, what you want less of in the podcast, but of course in life as well. And in that process, if you haven't already seen on the Facebook group, I've made a little survey to make sure that I'm including as much neighborhood feedback as I can as well while we plan out what's to come for this year on the show. There couldn't be anything more important than your feedback and suggestions to make sure that I'm putting exactly the yay in your ears every week that you actually want and need. So I'll pop the link in the show notes. And in the meantime, I'm releasing a couple of our crowd favorites from the last year in case you missed any of them so that you still have some yay to catch up on. Ignore some of the time-specific references, but otherwise most of them are pretty evergreen, so I hope you enjoy as much as I did. There is no conventional path or like the conventional path is actually the unconventional path, right? You will stop worrying so much what people think about you when you realize how seldom they do. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realize there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. I'm 100% sure some of you will be eye-rolling at me when I say that this is one of my favorite chats to date, but I think you might agree once you actually have a listen. I'm going to have to cut myself short in this intro because there is so much I could say about why Mark Manson is one of my favorite people in the world, but the episode itself makes it clearer than I could hear. Best known as the author of groundbreaking New York Times bestseller, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, I once mistook Mark's refreshingly anti-self-help approach to life to be the opposite of seizing the yay. In fact, it's not that he thinks we should give no fucks at all, but choose our fucks more carefully, and it's no surprise that his witty, no-bullshit delivery has taken the world by storm. Like all our guests, however, Mark's way to yay has been anything but predictable, going from feeling misplaced in his Texan hometown, getting a complete ego breakdown at music school, starting his working life as a pickup artist, all before becoming an author was even on the table. And yet, he's now sold over 10 million books, changed millions of lives, and has been trusted with writing the autobiography and first ever full account of the life of Will Smith. Mark is a personality of so many contrasts and facets and is open about every single one of them, including way more than I probably needed to know about his bodily functions. I dare you to listen without laughing, so you can definitely tell we both lost our marbles more than a few times. In between the hilarity, though, there are so many deep, insightful reflections on life that I hope are as groundbreaking to you as they were to me. Mark Manson, welcome to Seize the A. It's good to be here. 
I am so, so delighted to have you here after our chat a couple of weeks ago. It's so nice to see you again with a microphone. I'm blown away. <laughs> of course. Of course, I always come prepared. <laughs> so professional. Yes. <laughs> so I usually start with a little icebreaker for every episode, but I've added another one recently, which is just to ask how you are, because I think in this crazy, crazy, weird hurricane that 2020 has turned out to be, connecting with other humans and just touching base on how we are is important. So yeah. how are you going over in New York? So, you know, this isn't the answer you're supposed to give, but like, I'm fucking great. <laughs> this is really, <laughs> I would like the first month was really rough and there was a lot of, it was like emotionally stressful and physically stressful and I missed my friends and everything. But I, I'd say by, by month two, I settled into this groove and I've just been so healthy and so productive and my wife and I are getting along great. I mean, I still miss my friends, but I talk to them on the phone and on Zoom and everything. But like things have been pretty awesome <laughs> so, like to the point where my to the point where my wife like so new york is technically opening up this week and my wife and i were like i don't want to go out do you want to go no i don't want to like why would we go out this is crazy like let's just let's just keep it going <laughs> oh my gosh i feel that so much we've been exactly the same like that initial transition into a new routine was sort of like you get a little claustrophobic and then worried about uncertainty and like what's going to happen and then you just fall into acceptance and realize you can just be the introvert that you kind of always were. Yeah. Just be super antisocial and you don't need an excuse anymore. I'm like, this is amazing. It's yeah. just what I always wanted to do anyway. <laughs> it's and it's so easy to turn things down, to say no to things. Like it's great. It's it's just all of that kind of like obnoxious, you know, I don't know, like the happy hours that you don't really want to go to, but so-and-so invited you and you've turned down the last two things. You know, it's like, you don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's like, I'm not seeing anybody. So like, not it's even awesome. a question. <laughs> yeah. I also read you wrote that your time and agency has completely gone. I was like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Everything's just moved into this kind of like weird vortex of just chill at home. And I'm like, I love not knowing what day it is. Yeah. It's like school holidays. Yeah. it's. I mean, it, it weekends... Like every day is kind of a weekend, but not like I'll work through one weekend depending on what I'm doing. And then I'll take like a random Thursday off and like, <laughs> just like completely guilt-free, you know, whatever. <laughs> it took this for us to take advantage of the life structure that we have already. Like we already don't have a nine to five yeah. and we already were able to go guilt-free and allow ourselves to rejig our work over weekends and take, you know, swap weekends for weekdays. But we didn't do it before because it was like this weird social construct of like guilt that you shouldn't do that. But I'm like, I left corporate to do that and then I haven't allowed myself to do that. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah. I've always felt like in the past when I've tried to do that, it's been hard because a lot of my friends and family are in the corporate world. A lot of the people I work with are in the corporate, do the Monday to Friday, nine to five, you know, my agent and my publishers and all that. So it's like to kind of be optimal, you kind of have to at least... <laughs> Fit. Align with them a little bit. <laughs> yeah, like be with them like around like 90% of the time. But now it's just like, who cares? Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you weren't giving fucks before, you're definitely not giving them now, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. It's, I mean, it's weird in that way, right? In that it's, I think on an individual level, it's been very clarifying for people in terms of like what you actually value in your life and what is actually a good use of time. And that's great. Like, that's a great feeling. But then on a social level, it's absolutely disastrous on 
a lot of different dimensions <laughs> at the same time. So <laughs> yeah. it, it's this weird dichotomy going on where it's like, well, this is strangely, I, I don't know, like a, like a growth moment as an individual, but uh, you know, socially just shit is hitting the fan. Shit is definitely hitting the fan. <laughs> and that leads really nicely to the actual first icebreaker for every every episode, which is just asking people what the most down to earth thing is about them and cutting straight through the glossy surface that I think the digital world allows us to create around our identity or not even to create, but just it's it's hard to really cut through and show the real relatable stuff, but I think you are so good at it. Even <laughs> the fact that fuck came out in like the first three words of what you said. I mean, do you really want the most down there things about me? They're not. Absolutely. <laughs> like the grittier and the weirder, the better. Um, That's what this show is all about. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a very gassy person, but <gasps> yes, <laughs> incredibly, my feet don't sweat. So what I always tell my wife, I, I always tell my wife, you got to take the good with the bad, you know, like my feet never smell. That's amazing. But, you know, depending on what I, yeah, depending on what I ate, you know, it's some nights are better than others. So, I mean, you balance right out. Like that's the <laughs> definition of balance. <laughs> it, it evens out, right? <laughs> You're just a total compromise walking. I love that. And you know what? I think so many people's answer to that question, like real answer, is that they're really gassy. You are the first person that just went there. And I love that you, you've, you've probably opened the floodgates now to every other person. <laughs> I, think, I think you should just change the icebreaker from now on to how gassy are you? On a scale of one to Mark Manson, like where do you sit? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, what a great start. <laughs> so the very first section is your way TA, which is I sort of try and show the fact that every pathway is nonlinear. You can end up anywhere that you aspire to end up. And, you know, the quote that I always use for this section is you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step. Yeah. And I use people's stories and the roller coaster of how many different directions they went in and how many different places they've been to show that, yeah, at any one time you can change your life and you can come from all sorts of different backgrounds all the way back to childhood. And I love going through the decisions that you made at each stage. So take us back to the very beginning, young Mark in Austin, Texas, which I've heard you say you didn't really get along with, which actually doesn't surprise me in any way. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know, Austin is like the hot, the hot spot these days. Like it's people love it. Um, every here in the U.S., everybody's moving there. But what I always have to explain to people—I mean, Austin's a very cool place now. It's a lot of fun. But when I was a kid back in the '80s, it was Texas. You know, like it wasn't really like it. Uh, the cool part of Austin was like you know four square blocks downtown, and like everything outside of that, you're in Bubba Country. And uh, <laughs> it's so I I grew up in Bubba Country. You know, like in the suburbs, way out outside of Austin. And I went to schools that taught us how to ride horses and square dance. And I didn't learn, you know, I was taught that like the civil war wasn't about slavery and like all this shit like that. I went to, I I had to, I went to church three times a week. So it was like Bible belt, Southern United States. And um, yeah, that's not me. It's (laughs) it's probably, that won't take people very long to figure out that the guy with fuck on the cover of his book, um, (laughs) 
<laughs> is it really in the Bible Belt? I mean, that in itself is already such an indicator that you can outgrow your beginnings in any direction that you want. I mean, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, I, I'm always careful, you know, I'm careful talking about my childhood because it, it was so blessed and privileged in so many ways. Um, you know, like my my father was very successful had a nice house, lived in a nice neighborhood. Everything was very safe. Um, so, you know, in terms of like on the lower, in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like the lower levels in my childhood were always taken care of. You know, there wasn't mm. violence or abuse or anything like that. It was the higher levels that were a problem. You know, I just, I didn't relate. I was the angsty 14-year-old with greasy hair and a Marilyn Manson t-shirt <laughs> who like listened to Metallica, you know, and, and read, you know, was really into reading philosophy. And it, so it just, I just didn't fit in, you know, and it's as soon as I got to that age, uh, you know, got to adolescence where you start, the brain starts to develop into those higher Maslow's higher needs in his in his hierarchy it was a lot of social isolation and and mm. unhappiness so very happy childhood very angsty and angry adolescence and um and i decided at a very young age that these people are all full of shit <laughs> <laughs> uh, i don't believe a single thing that i've been taught about the world about life about anything uh, you know it kind of helped that the internet came around you know around around this time too and so I, I just decided, you know, I'm going to start at square one. I'm going to figure things out myself. So went to the library, checked out books on Buddhism and Hinduism and philosophy and spirituality and meditation and all these things and just started kind of exploring knowledge in general on my own. Oh my gosh, that is so fascinating. And, you know, I think there are so many people actually who from very, very early on, like before really even makes sense, felt at odds with their early, early environment. And I think sometimes we think that you're always going to be a product of your environment, but absolutely not. I, I think from very early on, you know, and you start to question and you can feel like you don't belong where you are. And I love that you went straight to like, how can I find out more? Yeah. What bigger world is out there for me? Um, you don't have to be constrained by where you start off. And that's in childhood, but in any other stage that that you go along, you can at any time decide that you don't fit yeah. and you'll find the next best place for you. So I love that you then, once the internet was discovered, sort of became a little bit of an online gamer and became a little bit rebellious. It's not surprising that you had a bit of a rebellious phase with, you know, psychedelics and like a bit of a colourful childhood there. Yeah. <laughs> How did you then work your way into a degree in international business and what led you to think that that might be the next best pathway for you? Um, that's a good question. I kind of wonder what the hell I was doing myself. Um, not to say that there's anything. <laughs> Psychedelics, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, I originally went to school for music. You know, the thing that really... No. Yeah, the, the thing that really got me through adolescence was music. Playing, listening music. I got pretty good at guitar, so that like won me some points with my peers. It was kind of the the center of my social identity as an adolescent. It's what I depend. It's how I got my self esteem. It's how I got approval from other kids. It's how I, it was how I was known by everybody at my schools. I was the guitar guy, and so it just kind of was logical that I should go to music school. Funny thing, you get to music school, and, and suddenly you're in a situation where every single person in the room is as good 
as you, if not better than you. So you go from a situation where it's like, I'm by far the best guitarist in my high school. And it's what everybody's like, oh my God, Mark is so good. He's so, he's so talented. He's so cool. And then I go to this other environment where it's like, everybody's a badass. And I actually, as a freshman, I kind of suck compared to them. Yeah. Um, Low level badass. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Entry level for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So music school was actually, I, I, I would describe it as a healthy experience of ego destruction in that everything that I kind of depended on for my, my personal validation and self-esteem just got obliterated within like six months. Mm. And it was a very difficult thing to grapple with. But I think coming out of that and realizing like, you're okay, you know, you're good at other things and people like you for other reasons and you, you know, you can do other things. It's a, I think that's a very important experience that we all need to have uh, when we're young or at some point in our lives, but preferably when we're young to know that we can, (laughs) to, to know that we could kind of survive that, you know? So then I, I, I transferred out of music school to, I guess, what you would call like a normal university. And, um, and I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. And I started out in business and I got about halfway through a business degree. My dad is uh, a business owner, an entrepreneur. He owns his own company. So I would go to school for business uh, at uni and then I would work the summers at my dad's company. I would work on the, the factory floor um, and just hang out with him and ask him questions about the business. And after two years of that, I realized that I was learning like five times as much talking to my dad during the summer than I was from the actual business classes I was taking <laughs> and paying all this money for. <laughs> I can't imagine you having that much patience for that. Like, no. I can imagine you just being like, this system doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I loved college because I, mean, I just partied all the time, you know? So I found class easy because it was self-directed. So it was like, I could study on my own time. And then I, you know, I had this, my dad is like kind of a badass at what he does. So <laughs> I would, I would take like an accounting class or, or, or whatever. And, and I'm like sitting there and I'm like, yeah, this is, dad told me about this like a year ago, you know, like why I, I don't need to study this. Um, <laughs> so I go drink every night and it was great. It was, <laughs> I was having the time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know something that I love so much about you? I loved it about your book and it has been amazing to discover that you are exactly like that in person, that you are incredibly self-aware in a way that belies your use of profanities in the way that you describe things. There's been like there's so much self-reflection on social constructs and our identity and the deconstruction of ego and all these things that are so advanced in self-reflection that you don't expect would come from someone who described themselves once as a sexless neophyte. Like (laughs) you're such a person of contrast, but I think that's why the cut through of where you ended up has been so strong because you, you don't come at it from this weird, like, you know, philosophical academic basis. You come from this like really grounded sense of real life experience. Like, yeah, I was magna cum laude, super smart, but also like drinking my way through college. Amazing. I love that about you. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's funny because I, I think the contrast, like the contrast you're describing about my personality, I, it's something that I notice. So my books do, I mean, they do well in the United States. They do really well in the United States, but they did like. <laughs> and everywhere. But 
Australia and Canada in particular, like it's funny when I talk to people and audiences and journalists and stuff from Australia and Canada, it's like there's an appreciation for that. Whereas when I talk to people and journalists and, and things like that in, in the United States and, and in Britain, there's kind of like a, so what's going to, who, like they're suspicious. They're like, you're not for real, <laughs> right? Like you're just pulling one over on us. Like you can't yeah. actually be like this. Like you're either really smart and pretending to be a cool guy, or you're actually a cool guy who's pretending to be smart. Like you can't be both at the same time. But it was like, <laughs> I go to Australia and I just feel like, it just, it just feels like a party. Like it just feels like. We're your people, right? Like we get I, that. <laughs> That's all of guys. us in college. <laughs> I love of you guys. Yeah, totally. It's, it's, yeah, it's you get it. Anyway, it's a tangent. <laughs> I mean, I love tangents. This whole show is a tangent basically, which is why it's my favorite thing. There's like a loose structure and then it's like, oh, your bladder and bowel, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I think another thing that's so interesting about you and probably why people are slightly suspicious is because we're so used to this conventional idea of career pathways and self-discovery and yours just doesn't fit into those conventions. But most people's don't and that's why it's so relatable and you're really bringing to the forefront of our attention the idea that you can become an author without going to writing school and thinking that you're going to be a writer and having books in your library when you're five. Like I love that you have proven that you don't have to decide till kind of yeah. late after a whole career as a pickup artist. What? <laughs> oh, God. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't realize you were going to bring that up. Uh, of course. There's like oh God. a big section for, uh, what is it? Entropy was your game in Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like that's coming out. <laughs> oh, God. No. Well, so here's the funny thing. So I decided in uni – or I might as well just take the classes I like. Like, here's the funny thing. You actually just mentioned it about there is no conventional path or like the conventional path is actually the unconventional path, right? Um, it's most people actually don't follow the conventional path. One thing that music school taught me, and it's definitely true with writing, and I think it's true with business as well, is that when I got to music school, it was so clear. Like, you could kind of do the math and figure out that like, okay, out of say 100 kids in my my class in music school. There's really only room in the music industry for maybe like a dozen of us. Like it's the type of industry that either you make it or you don't. And if you make it, you get all the gigs. And if you don't, you get none of them. And what I realized, like the reason I left is because it was just so clear within the first year that it's like, okay, those 10 guys and girls are going to make it. And the rest of us are, are going to fight for the scraps. And I, re- and I realized, I'm like, okay, those 10 guys and girls, they don't actually have to be here. They're so good that they could go be professionals right now. They're just here to get the piece of paper. So I kind of, I think most things are like that. It's like, if you're, if you're really good at business or have an aptitude for it or have a passion for it, you don't need business school. Like, the business school, it's just, it's a formality. It's a, it's, a, it's a credential to show people who are skeptical of you. And that's kind of what I realized too with, like, with my dad. I'm like, oh, I don't actually need my business classes if I'm ever going to start a business. Like, I just need to find really smart people and ask them smart questions, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it's definitely true with writing. Most people who go to school for writing don't become authors. It's a very like unpleasant secret of writing schools and writing <laughs> programs is just that none of them become authors. It's and all the authors, they never planned on writing. Like it just, well, a lot of them do, but like a lot of the, the, it's not like a thing that they studied necessarily. Mm, um, that's such a good point. I mean, it's a, 
I kind of describe my law degree as a really, really expensive, long-winded way of biding my time to kind of get the piece of paper, (laughs) have an amazing backup plan. Like I always have a wonderful plan B. And the first three years where I did work in corporate was that there's something to be said for the fact that you don't necessarily need it. I definitely didn't need it for what I do now, but I couldn't have started what I do now when I graduated uni. I was just too young. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And again, you needed to go through a whole career before you got to where you are now. And it's not that like you can't have skipped that to get to where you are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like even though you didn't need that to get to where you are now, technically you, you could have started writing earlier, but the time that that allowed you, like there's a reason why a lot of us do degrees we don't end up using. It's not that we, you know, they were never a waste. It's just that sometimes you need to mature and like get out in the world and figure out who you are before you know what the thing is that you're going to be successful in. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's a constantly evolving process of trying something out, seeing how it feels and then deviating. And and what's what's amazing too is is not only do you have to do that to kind of get to where you're really happy and satisfied, but even once you've found that spot where you're happy and satisfied, the spot moves, you know? So it's like the things that I loved about my job five years ago, I don't necessarily love them as much today. There's other things that I love today, you know? And so there's like a constant flexibility that you you kind of need to develop within yourself. Oh my gosh, that's the best soundbite I ever could have gotten from you. I'm like, okay, we can finish now. That's amazing. <laughs> All right, good night. Bye. <laughs> the last chapter of my book is actually the big quote on it is, yay is a journey, not a destination. And that's so true. Yeah. Everything in our life is geared towards this idea that there's this static point of like, yes, I made it. But actually the point, it's like constantly evolving. Your comfort zone, you step out of it, it catches up to you. You step out of it, it catches up to you. So yep. I think if we, if we see our way way to yay is evolving in chapters rather than like just this one static journey. You understand the process better, you embrace it more, and then you do stay more open-minded to like this happiness right now might not be where I am yeah. in five years. Totally. Which leads amazingly <laughs> to your transition from international business magna cum laude graduate to discovering the game, which if no one has heard of this book, like there's a whole thing around the game. Read it. <laughs> read about it. <laughs> it will explain to you why Mark entered what is actually a full community and then transitioning in 2010 from out of the community from pickup artistry to civilian life and then on to <laughs> onto authorship. <laughs> Are you regretting that you commit a lot of your thoughts at certain times in your life to writing? Because I've found a lot of great material. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you definitely did your research. <laughs> you know, the pickup artist thing, it's so funny to talk about that today because it doesn't really exist anymore. Mm. Like, well, I'll, I'll explain why, but I guess first to give people a little bit of background on like what it was. So basically <laughs> the pickup artist community was back in the early 2000s when social media first started and forums and Reddit and all this stuff was just coming online. People didn't realize like there are certain communities that were maybe a little bit taboo, like, like things you that were too taboo to talk about mm. that in person or to form a group in person that for some reason online, it, it became comfortable. Like, you know, thoughts that you had that maybe you didn't want to like say out loud to people in a room, you could go online anonymously and post somewhere and find out that, wait, wait, you know, there's tons of other people who feel this way. And I think one of those was men who were very insecure uh, around their sexuality, around their dating lives, around their ability to attract women, to be attractive to women. 
they it's it's something that men we don't it never feels appropriate to actually talk about that to to our guy friends because mm-hmm. our guy friends would like make fun of us and <laughs> tell us we're like you look like a foot and, and your ba- your yeah. your gassiness is just it's you know it's a deal breaker <laughs> Really? Exactly. <laughs> Maybe if you're less gassy, Mike, you wouldn't have so many problems. <laughs> Maybe you should see a digestion specialist. Maybe that's where, <laughs> where things will really change for you for the better. <laughs> yeah. So this community emerged of, of all these guys who are like, yeah, like girls don't like me. I don't know how to get a date. I'm single and I'm miserable and blah, blah, blah. And it was kind of the first time ever that men felt comfortable to come together in groups and have these conversations, which I think is a great thing. I still think it's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is, is that, you know, as anybody who's used the internet knows, there are a lot of shitty people out there. And pretty soon, a, a, a large segment of the community became dominated by people, by men who were very manipulative, um, had a lot of like sleazy tactics and uh, tricks, things to say to women, like trick them into like coming on a date with them or whatever. Mm. So it, there was a huge book in 2005 called The Game, which kind of described this whole community and a lot of these tactics and tricks and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I read that as a, as a student at uni, you know, in between my, my keg parties. And um, important and research, right? Like really important yeah. research. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I was blown away. And it was funny because the advice in the book itself was terrible. Like it's just the cheesiest, sleaziest stuff. Like within a week, I'm like, this is awful. I'm never going to say this again. But I found, I, I got online and I found that there was a whole, you know, this whole community of men and they're sharing. And there's a lot of, there's a very wide variety of perspectives in that community of a lot of guys you know, wanted to have more integrity and be honest about what they were trying to do. And a lot of men were like very sleazy and whatever. So jump ahead like a couple of years, I get out of school and the economy's in the toilet. It's 2007. It's biggest recession in like ever. Worst job market ever. Um, And I have no idea what I'm going to do. And so I started doing like freelance web design and marketing work and stuff like that. And um, just to make a few bucks. I read Tim Ferriss's four hour work week and he was talking about like, you know, Oh, you just set up a a site, you automate it and you go live in Argentina and have a great time. (laughs) I'm like, like shit, it's that easy. Uh, Let me do that. You know? And so, (laughs) yeah. So I I tried to start setting up these businesses and of course, you know, I'd work like, you know, for a month straight and, uh, and make like $20 or something. And I'm like, okay, this isn't I'm really- I'm not going to make it to Argentina. Damn. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So like this went on for like a year of just me struggling, building sites, trying different stuff out, trying affiliate marketing, trying like e-commerce, trying drop shipping, like all this different stuff. And it's like, I'm making, you know, hundred bucks here, $20 there, pennies here. Rolling in it basically. Yeah. Right. I'm just killing it. <laughs> <laughs> Dozens of dollars. Dozens. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and I was living on a friend's couch and I, I had started a personal blog, um, like a year ago and I had just been writing about, uh, my, my personal life, just like person, like personal blogs were super popular at that time. And, you know, people would just kind of journal online and I was writing about my personal life, which primarily consisted of going to bars and clubs and going on dates. And, uh, and it just started to kind of organically attract readers. So it started, I was just my guy friends in Boston. And then maybe three or four months later, some guys started showing up on it that 
I had never met before. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. Um, <laughs> you know, and then a year goes by and now I'm getting like a hundred people reading it a day and it's starting to get shared on pickup artist forums and stuff. You know, it's like I had a crazy party where I hooked up with this girl and had this great night and it's like suddenly it's getting shared on these forums and stuff. <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? Like got to do something, you know? So I, I like started trying to monetize it and uh, I never really thought of it as a career. I was just like, oh, let me do this dating thing so I can make enough money so I can go to Argentina. That's like, <laughs> still the not goal. Not work. That's <laughs> still the goal. <laughs> I don't actually want to like work on this thing. Like, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and next thing I know, I'm I'm getting guys at, like offering to pay me to like go out with them. You know, they're like, hey, come out with me and talk to girls and introduce them to me and I'll like give you like 500 bucks. You're like hit. And of course I'm, yeah, exactly. And so I was completely broke and I'm like, that sounds awesome. Like, you know, a, a broke single 24 year old, that's like literally the best proposition. You can <laughs> it's like, here's $500, go hit on girls. <laughs> I mean, like we said, the dream, it evolves, right? Like that was the dream <laughs> totally then. Evolves. That was a contextual dream. <laughs> Era appropriate. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm like, this, wow, this is amazing. So I start doing this thing and uh, start learning how to kind of market myself or whatever. And this goes on, you know, and so I'm scraping by. I can finally like pay some rent. I'd say like a year or two later, I started, I started to realize something, which is, you know, guys would come to me and they'd ask all these questions. You know, they'd say like, oh, what do I say on a first date? Or like, or how do like, if a, if a woman doesn't text me back, what do I do? And they're like very surface level questions. And at first I would just give very surface level answers like, oh, say this, do that, whatever. But then I started to realize that like actually most of these, these men who are like coming to me and like reading my blog and emailing me, their real issue is they have emotional problems. Like it's not the big problem of your dating life isn't that you don't know where to take a girl on a first date. Like the big mm. problem is that you, you're like so insecure that you think this is like a, a big deal. This is like a deal breaker or something, you know, if you don't pick mm. the right ice cream shop. Um, <laughs> like you're the common denominator, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, yeah it's you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like <laughs> women are fine. <laughs> There's like 3.5 billion of them. So if you can't find the right one, like it's <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's you. It's absolutely you. <laughs> it's probably you. Uh, so I started getting into psychology and this kind of, you know, this kind of dovetailed with a lot of like the reading I had done for fun when I was like, I read a lot of psychology and philosophy and stuff like that when I was an adolescent. And so I really got into it. I really got curious both for, you know, my clients and readers, but also for myself. Like I started discovering all sorts of crap about my, like, shit, I had mommy issues and fuck, <laughs> I was objectifying women. And like, and I, so I'm discovering all this stuff and I'm like, man, I got to write an article about that. And so, and then I would write an article and it would take off and get more readers and they'd ask me more questions. And then I'd go research and discover more stuff and have another epiphany. And then, you know, it was just kind of this cycle that happened. And then I guess like the, the last big pivot. So I kind of ended up, I realized that the pickup artist thing was, it, I was like, man, this is a sinking ship. I, I could tell very early on, I'd say like 2009, 2010, I realized this thing is going in two directions because there's basically, there are men who are into this because they recognize that they're responsible, that it's them who have the problem and it's them who need to fix their behavior. 
And then there was a, a, a smaller subset of men who refused to take that responsibility and they preferred to blame women, to blame feminism, to blame politics, to blame, you know, economics, whatever, you know, and they started to become very political and very sexist. And I could see that divergence happening of like, most of this is getting healthier, but there's a significant minority that it, this is going towards a very dark place. Mm. And I think that's kind of what's happened today is today you have, there's now a lot of very healthy men's dating advice out there, but then you also have these like incel communities and men go their own way communities and red pill communities where it, where it's incredibly misogynistic and antisocial and like just dark, mm. miserable shit. So I was like, I got to get out of this. And originally I, I rebranded my site and my business to a, just a men's lifestyle and personal development site. It was called Postmasculine. And I, I, I kind of was very open. I'm like, look, it's, I'm no longer just talking about relationships and dating. I'm talking about career, emotional issues, family issues, self-esteem issues, et cetera. Um, especially cause it's, there's not a lot, there was not a lot of content like that for men at the time. And then something completely unexpected happened, which was that tons of women started reading the site. And I, I, by 2012, I discovered that it was like the 30% of my readers were women Whoa! and they started emailing me. They're like, I love this article. Can you write one for women? And I was like, well, actually, you know, you can just the advice is the same, just change the, the pronoun, basically. Mm. And then I, I realized that I said that about enough articles that I'm like, wait a second, like the hell am I doing writing a men's site? I should just be writing this for everybody. <laughs> and so that was the kind of the final pivot to, to my current career today, which is just personal development blogger, author, web brand, whatever you want to call it. Oh my God, you are the most self-deprecating person in the entire world. Just like, you know, like a blogger, <laughs> like not like a 10 million books sold New York Times bestselling author. Like, no, I'm just like a little internet man. Like, it's fine. <laughs> but isn't that like, it just blows my mind. This is my favorite thing about this show is reminding everyone exactly what you just said that at any point right up until the final pivot you had no idea what the next pivot was going to be which is the pivot we all know you for yeah and people would kind of encounter you at this chapter of your life and think oh you know he went to journalism school his whole life he knew he was going to be an author and he schmoozed with all the right people and he like had direction and certainty but like you had no idea up until the very blog post that you know that had the title of your first book yeah that then made you realize this is a book I'm an author like I don't even think you would have realized you were an author until sort of after that had happened yeah I, I didn't consciously decide that I wanted to be an author like I wanted my career to be as an author. I decided that I think when I was 27 or 28. And it's funny because I mean, you're right. Like I, I get emails all the time from kids and uni students and stuff. You know, they're like, oh, I'm 20. I'm only 20 years old or I'm 20 years old and I haven't taken any writing classes, but I really want to be an author. Like, you know, what, like I don't know what I want to do. Is it too late? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I <laughs> I was almost 30 and I'm like, still like, Hmm, is this what I want to do? Like, I'm not sure. You know, it, it, it wasn't until I was, I was 27. I wrote, uh, I self-published a dating advice book in 2011. And that, the process of writing that in the reception of that was so positive and enjoyable for me that I was like, wow, I can actually do like, I could actually be a published author. Like I could actually be a best-selling mm. author. And that was when I was 27. Oh my gosh. And then 
Fernanda married you, which is a miracle given everything I've heard so far. <laughs> but I love that, you know, you, you very much closed one chapter sort of in this evolution and then opened this whole new chapter to becoming, rather than the focus being on relation, it's like a relational focus, it became just a lifestyle and you found, I kind of see a lot of these stories where it takes someone so many evolutions to just find their linchpin, like their thing that's yeah. that's their signature. But then once you find it, everything becomes about that. And in reflection, everything was actually about that. And I love that then sort of as you stumbled upon this theme and wrote a blog post that then became the book that sort of propelled you onto the scene from, I don't know if I want to be an author to, oh my God, I've had like 179 weeks on the top of the New York Times bestseller list, like whatever. It's You've become this counterpoint to bullshit disruptor to the self-help industry that's completely shaken up everything but without planning it like I just love that things can unravel in ways that you you never expected in writing the book and sort of having a bit of evidence that this is really where the gap was in this cut through realist really open kind of shocking like using swear words you know I'm sure you you in all your reading you saw that there's a very soft attitude generally to self-help like very embracing and nurturing and you're just like realist cut through you're not special blah 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 like it's obviously been received so well because people need that realist approach to be able to have revelations and, and sort of move forward what did you think would be the best case scenario and then when it actually ended up exploding when did you go oh my god I'm successful like when did that hit yeah. you that this is a thing well it's interesting because I think I would say it was around 2013 or 2014 that I really stumbled upon I guess this kind of idea of like anti-self-help or I, I like to think of it as like negative self-help you know so it's you know <laughs> Stop trying to feel good all the time. Stop thinking positive all the time. Like life fucking sucks. You know, you, you, bad things happen to good people. You're going to survive. You know, it's, it's, it's all about the meaning that you make from the moment. Um, and I started kind of writing that, that style, that cutting style uh, around 2013, 2014. And, it, and the blog exploded. The blog was up to, I think, to this day, the, the biggest blog traffic year I've ever had was 2014 and it was almost two and a half million people a month on average. It was oh my like it was gosh. <laughs> it was like a monster, just monster amounts of traffic. So I kind I knew it was gonna do well. Like I knew if I could put a book out with that message and package it well and explain it well and and put good stories into it, I knew it would do well. And my goal was I I just I want to be a New York Times bestselling author. I'd like to do like a book tour, you know, I guess like a, a stretch goal was sell a million books at some point in my career. You know, it's like if you, maybe when I'm like got six books under my belt, if you add up all those numbers, it'll total over a million books. <laughs> like that was kind of, that was kind of what I was shooting for. And, and Subtle Art just smashed every single one of those dreams within like four months, which is crazy because it it's... <laughs> It's on the one hand, it's amazing. On the other hand, your brain is kind of like, no, it wasn't supposed to go this way. Like this is not, (laughs) we weren't ready. I'm not ready. (laughs) Exactly. It was like, this is supposed to be like a long, gradual trajectory. You weren't supposed to go straight to the summit. And so it actually took about a year for me to just kind of like mentally adjust to what was happening. Mm. And it was very disorienting. And it's a weird thing to talk about because, you know, nobody wants to hear the guy who, you know, sold 10 million books, talk about how 
difficult and disorienting it was, but, <laughs> yeah. but it, it was a fascinating lesson for me because it, it showed me that like, you know, we, we all know that large unexpected negative events can have, can cause a lot of psychological stress. Mm. We don't really realize that large unexpected positive events can have the same effect on us. It, we don't really talk about that. Like you're not really supposed to talk about that. Yeah. It's been interesting because as I've gotten to know um, a number of like very successful people over the last few years, I've found that like a lot of them have had a similar kind of experience like that where they, it's just completely disorienting and they actually become like a little bit lost and depressed for a little while because they're like, wait, this wasn't supposed to actually happen, right? Like, this, <laughs> <laughs> like, what am I supposed to hope for or dream for? You know, like, it's like the dog who caught the car. He just kind of sits there like, now what, right? Which is like exactly why I think this, like my personal chase for success as a thing really evolved towards this more seize the yay philosophy, like chasing the fulfillment and the and the joy, because there is a bit of an existential crisis around success if you're too wrapped up in that being what your goal is and that being your to- like the totality of what your identity is wrapped around in. Because then when you get it or you far exceed it, it does cause this strange like I'll never be able to hit that again. Like what a- what is my purpose? What are my goals? And it's a- it is a really disorientating concept that leads us all, I think, down quite unusual and disorientating pathways when either we get it or we don't get it or we have it too much or too little like it's a very subtle balance which is why I've really tried to like obviously still have that as a marker but yeah aim for different metrics like the the metrics that are less fluctuating because then I'm more balanced and less like of a head fuck all the time (laughs) totally well and the irony is that like everything you just like everything you just said is described in this in subtle art like it's, I needed my own advice, basically. Like yeah. it, it's the solution to my problem was my own advice. But, you know, one, one of the things I discovered during that period too is, it, and I think a lot of it, I think a lot of the reason it kind of messed with me was because coming from the, like blogging and internet marketing and everything, like you get very attached to kind of this incremental growth, right? And it's probably similar with podcasting. You know, it's like this year or 2019 was, X percentage better than 2018 and 2018 was X percentage better in 2017 and 2020 is going to be X percentage better in 2019. Like you kind of get, you get hooked on that, like, you know, slow, but steady growth that happens. And it's, it's a lot of fun to watch. It's a lot of fun to experience. It's a lot of fun to challenge yourself to always like get that next leg up that next step on the staircase, so to speak. Mm. And, uh, you know, when subtle art just went vertical, basically, I realized like there's no, there's no step above this one. Like it's only down from here. Yeah. You, know? and you peaked way too early. You just peaked exactly. too early. Well, it, it, like I was 32 and I was 32 and I realized I'm like, this is literally the most successful thing I'm, I'm ever going to do. Like from a, a external metric point of view, mm. like this is the biggest thing I'm ever going to do in my career, almost guaranteed. And uh, it really messed with me. It like really, really messed with me because it's, I think I didn't realize how attached I was to that incremental, like being better than I was last year, you know? And I, I realized I'm like, okay, I, I need to find a different way to measure this. I need to find a different way to evaluate my career and evaluate like what I'm doing with my career. And so, yeah, it took it, that was like a, probably a six month process to kind of work through all that 
mm. mentally and emotionally. And it is interesting that your book is exactly the book that you probably did need to go back to to just remind yourself that you already knew all the things you needed to know to have that shift. They just took on a new meaning because, I mean, I don't want to reveal too much about the book because I want people to go and read it if they haven't. So I, I love concentrating more on the story. But just to touch briefly, it's such when I first saw the title, I didn't read it for a long time because I thought it was anti-yay and it was anti like joy and the self-help books that I kind of resonate with in that fluffy, warm kind of way. But it's actually not that at all. Like even though there are chapters like you're not special and, you know, if other self-help books tell you to believe in yourself, I'm going to tell you not to. Like it sounds counterintuitive, but it's actually what I realized over the course of reading it because it was like irrepressible, like this orange cover like in my face in every airport I just couldn't not read it (laughs) it was actually not about giving no fucks it was just about choosing where you put them which is like the most important lesson anyone could learn is no one's meant to not care but we care too much in too many directions and in too many of the wrong directions but if you bring it all back to just simple cut through no bullshit that's where things start to fall into place and I just yeah I didn't expect to love the book so much and I understand why it became such a big thing and that why you have become such a big thing because you do you discuss things like the existential crisis of success that people don't talk about yeah it's normalizing stuff that no one wants to say out loud because it doesn't sound positive but actually it really is well and it's I've kind of built my career on those conversations Mm. Uh, like one of the things I, I I honestly ask myself anytime I I'm going to do another book or a blog post or whatever. I, I ask myself, I, I say like, what, what needs to be said and nobody's saying it? I want to be the one who says that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of like my guiding principle in a lot of the stuff I do. I did it with the pickup artist stuff. You know, it's like the thing that needed to be said in the pickup artist community was guys, you're emotionally fucked up and you're in denial about it. And by the way, like we need to have a real like ethical discussion <laughs> about what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? And I decided in 2010, I'm like, all right, well, I'm out of I'm leaving this industry regardless. So I wrote my dating book is kind of like this is what needs to be said. And it and it became, I mean, it's still the best selling men's dating book. And, you know, and then I did that in self-help as well. I'm like, okay, what what needs to be said in the self-help industry that's not being said? It was like, well, pain is fucking normal, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, it's probably not because your mom didn't hug you or your dad, you know, didn't call you when you left home. Like, it's, life is just fucking hard, all right? And yeah. sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you deciding that this pain is a, is a big deal is, is, or deciding that the pain is is a problem is actually the problem. It's it's And I think that's so wonderful because where a lot of the conventional self-help theories fall down is when shit hits the fan. Yeah. They just don't have an answer. They just don't address it. And I think that realist approach is actually acknowledging the shit bits is how you get to the good bit. Like the ability to tie that process, tie pain into joy yeah. is what is stands out so much. Um, but I also love that you're sort of, you know, you said before, like I peaked with the first book, blah, 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 and nothing ever good after that could possibly come in another amazing development that you never could, could have thought was happening. You've not only written everything is fucked just before the world actually became fucked and needed every <laughs> single lesson in that book. Your autobiography is coming out with Will Smith. What? <laughs> Explain. <laughs> Um, Will contacted me 
Will's wanted to wait, do- wait, 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 wait. What? I don't like to interrupt, but like Will contacted you. Well, okay, not Will himself. Um, oh, no, but no, 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 no. But it came from his side. It came yes. from his side. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean. This is the best. <laughs> I wish people could see you. You're like literally cheering in your bedroom. I was uh, so excited. <laughs> like it wasn't like, you know, the, this kid from Austin who like, you know, chased Will Smith's team for like five years because you wanted him to be the guy on the project. It was he came to me. Yeah, no, it, I never, I never expected to do a project like this. And uh, it was funny actually, because my agent contacted me. There were a number of different, like a lot of different opportunities came up after Subtle Art became, like I got offers for TV shows and reality shows and you know, a lot of stuff. We turned down a lot of stuff. And um, and I, I told my agent, I'm like, look, like I'm not, I don't need them to like squeeze every dollar out of this thing. Like I I want to, like, I want to, <laughs> I want to be able to sleep at night and I want to be writing and in, like enjoying my life. Like 20, 30 years from now. So like, I don't, I'm young. I don't need to like squeeze every penny. Yeah. My 12 pennies, uh, there's more than 12 pennies now. I've built up (laughs) a few more in my collection. Yeah. Yeah. It's more than a couple dozen dollars. Um, So we were shooting down a lot of stuff. And then one day my agent called me and she's like, hypothetically speaking, which an agent talk is, this is not hypothetical at all, but I just want to see what your reaction is. (laughs) She said, hypothetically speaking, how would you feel about working with a celebrity on their book? And I said, probably not, but it would really, it would depend who the person is and it would depend why they want to do the book. I said, it would have to be like an A-lister, like somebody really big. And <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, no, I'm, I totally, no, I totally appreciate yeah, that. You know, like uh, no offense to like Kevin Bacon or whatever, but like <laughs> it's, <laughs> I'm sure so he's a specific. great guy. <laughs> he's a great guy. He's a great actor, but it's like, yeah, dude, like. There are a million ghostwriters out there you can hire for, you know, 10K or whatever. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Bacon, if you're listening, I'm really sorry. I didn't know who was yeah, going to drop that. Kevin. <laughs> Nothing personal. He's just the first kind of, you know. Like A minus grade, you know, B grade, semi kind of on the cusp celebrity yeah, that came like, to brain. Like if, <laughs> like if Gary Sinise reached out. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I'd be like, I'd be like, oh, you're the villain from that one. What was that movie? And then I would, I'd be like, oh, I guess I shouldn't take the project. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just taking uh, notes so that if Gary ever asks me, I'll say on behalf of Mark Manson, that, it's a no. Just in case is, you're wondering. <laughs> this is how you respond, yeah. So you're that guy from that one flick with the, the gun and yeah. That was a great um, tangent. Yep. Back, yeah. back to the so, point. Yep. So anyway, yeah. So I told my agent, I'm like, look, like it ha- it'd have to be somebody big. It'd have to be somebody really big and they would have to want to do it for the right reasons. Like I, a celebrity in the publishing world, celebrities actually have a little bit of a, a bad reputation because they cost publishers tons and tons of money to do the book. Mm. And most of them don't actually want to work on it. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to share anything, you know, that could potentially be damaging or controversial. It's basically a trophy that they want, you know, like they're like, give me my own book so I can put it on my shelf and tell people I have a book. (laughs) Um, 
you just call it how it is. I yeah. love it. <laughs> and, and by the way, give me millions of dollars and you're never going to make a profit. So yeah. it, it's like, it's a great proposition for you, really. I mean, how can, yeah. how else can I yet, give you the selling points? Yet publishers line up by the fucking dozens to do these things. So uh, <sighs> go figure. But it, it's, you know, 90% of celebrity books, you know, it's, it's their nightmare to get done and the celebrities don't really cooperate in any, you know, so, so they have, it's actually, these books have kind of a bad reputation in the industry. So I was, my agent warned me of all this stuff. And, and so I met with a bunch of Will's people, a couple of people on his team, his manager, uh, went through this whole kind of bizarre interview process where they asked me, like, they totally asked me all the questions you're not supposed to ask in a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> like, who did you vote for at the last presidential election? How Whoa. do you feel about Muslims? Like, what's your relationship, you know, with black people? Like, things like that, which I totally respect. Like, it's, it's a type of thing that is, would never happen in the corporate world because you'd get sued out of your mind yeah. but i mean if, if you're will smith and you're you're a gatekeeper for will smith and you're looking to hire a guy to like deal with intimate p details of his personal life like you got to make sure the values line up and mm. and that it's it's going to be a good fit so so it was super interesting going through all that and then finally they're like okay cool so the next step is for you to meet will and they're like, we'll, we'll keep you posted. And it was so bizarre. I, I don't know if they did this on purpose. Like, I don't know if they were just kind of stringing me along, like testing me to see if I was going to be a prima donna and like freak out and be like, I'm a very important author. My time is valuable. Like I'd be, so this is what would happen. I'd be hanging out. So I, I had a meeting with their people in LA in like, I think October of 2017. And they're like, cool. So we're going to, we're going to get you some time with will we're gonna like fly you out and you're gonna spend time with will and see how you guys get along i'm like okay cool we'll be in touch like so about a month later i get an email out of the blue they're like uh so will would like to see you are you available uh you know it'd be like a thursday night i'd get this email they're like are you available on saturday to go to london and i'm like <laughs> okay sure what yeah fuck it like right, i'll just i'll clear my weekend i'll cancel everything I'm going to London. I'm going to hang out with Will Smith. Sweet. You know, and then 24 hours later, I get an email like Friday night. I get an email and they're like, uh, sorry, it's off. Uh, we'll, we'll keep you posted. <laughs> so this is, they read the game. Yeah. This is right. why. <laughs> <laughs> you're totally getting me hooked. Yeah. You're totally right. You're right. <laughs> you should have seen this coming. Gaming me every step of the way. So this happens, you know, and then I'm like, another month goes by and then I get this email and they're like, you know, it's a Tuesday night and they're like, Will's going to be in Miami. Can you leave tomorrow? And I'm like, I look at my calendar. I'm like, no, I have like three important things to do this later this week. I have like meetings and uh, friends in town and staying with me and like all this stuff. I'm like, no, I can't like, can't you guys give me like a week notice or something? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't say any of that. Of I'm course. like, you know, sorry, sorry, not available. So anyway, this goes on, this happens like three or four times. And then finally, like, and I actually got to the point where I'm like, you know what? This is probably never going to happen, but whatever. It's fun to think about. And then, um, <laughs> it's fun. Mark, <laughs> you're not special. I mean, <laughs> just read your own book, please. <laughs> <laughs> and so February of the next year, I get the same kind of email. It's like a Monday morning, you know, they're like, are you available to go to Georgia tomorrow? And I'm like, yeah, I actually don't have a whole lot going on this week. I can move I can move stuff, whatever. Sure enough, ticket comes through, end up on a plane, land. Next thing I know, I'm like on set on an Ang Lee film, like hanging out, watching them shoot action scenes. 
like Will Smith's like 10 feet away from me. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> Like, this is insane. What did wait? Hold on a second. This is actually fucking happening. Worth the wait. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, and then it, once we actually got in a room together, I mean, what I've since discovered is that Will is just like literally the busiest human on the planet. Of course. Like, his schedule is absurd. Like, he does more in a day than like most people do in a week. And, um, <laughs> but yeah, once we finally got in a room together for a couple hours, it's, yeah, we, we hit it off. He told me flat out, you know, I told him, I said, look, the only way it really works for me to do this book, like the only way I can be excited, you know, I shouldn't do this book and it's your life. Whoever writes it should be excited. Mm. Right. And I told him, I said, the only way I'm going to be excited to do this is this needs to be like, there needs to be some sort of cause or motivation beyond I'm Will Smith and I want to have an autobiography. Mm. You know, if you just want somebody to document your life, like there are a lot of really good writers who can do that. And he said, he's like, no, actually, I went through a lot of trouble in my marriage. My father just passed away. He had a little bit of a midlife crisis. He's like, I've, I've had like a very big transformation over the last five years. My, my worldview has completely changed. And I screwed a lot of things up in my life. And people don't know that about me. People don't know who I really am. Mm. Like I've had to keep my image so perfect for so many years because I was in the spotlight that I, people don't actually know what I've gone through, what I've been through. Um, and so I want this book to, to be able to share that with people for the first time. And so I was like, fuck dude, I'm in. <laughs> if that's why you want this, like I'm in. And he's, um, I mean, Will's great. Like I have nothing but amazing things to say about him. And he is, I just finished the draft last week. We actually postponed this interview because I was, thank you. Cause I was like, Oh my God, freak, don't thank me. <laughs> freaking out like trying to finish this draft. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I think people are going to be blown away by how candid the book is and how, how many life lessons there are from it. You know, one of the first things he told me when we sat down is he said, when I was nine years old, I watched my father beat my mother so hard that she vomited blood. And I decided that night that I needed to be in charge of the family so that this never happened again. He was nine years old. Oh and then he like gosh. went and fucking did it. And I'm like, okay, I'm in. Um, I'm, a, yeah. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. I will write that story. <laughs> oh my God though. But seriously, Mark, like to like who would have thought this pooch from Texas who didn't even know that he wanted to be a writer would be trusted with the first ever account of Will Smith's most intimate revelations about his life. Like I cannot actually process it's and I'm not even intimately involved. Like the the jump is just It took me like a year to process. Like I <laughs> dude, I lost my virginity watching watch <laughs> no, this is true story. I lost my virginity watching Men in Black. True story. Stop I invited my girlfriend over to watch Men in Black and then we like, to like totally lost my virginity. I told Will that. He thought it was hilarious. But I like love that you were like, here's Will Smith as a taster. Like, get excited. Um, <laughs> this is the warmer upper. Here's Will Smith being like a bowler. <laughs> and I can't believe as well, even more amazing to me, full circle, that he's actually Hitch. Like, he is. you are writing the book of Hitch. What is this? Like, no, it's 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 just a mind fuck in like eight different ways, and it, it's it's weird because you know I 
I mean, we all, everybody in our generation, we grew up watching him. Like everybody watched Will Smith, like watch Will Smith movies, watch Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh my gosh. And, uh, did you fangirl? So Please tell me you fangirled. I did. I did. <laughs> yes. I, I, I mean, I was, I, they like him and his people have told me later that I was pretty good. At, like I, I can be pretty stoic. Like they said, I didn't really show it. I was like the whole first day I was like freaking out. I mean, if anyone's going to make your feet sweat, it would be Will Smith. <laughs> <laughs> like you brought that full circle. Right. I like that. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, oh my gosh. I've like literally talked your ear off and like skipped two whole <laughs> sections because that was the best tangent ever. But I, w- <laughs> I should let you go. It's late at night for you. But I would like to wrap up with uh, just a couple of last questions that kind of bookend along with the, the sweaty feet thing. Um, bookend the, the episode. <laughs> you're not going to beat the sweaty feet book. No, you're right. I mean, but the gassy, I mean, we should have separated those two facts to bookend because that would have been great. <laughs> if anyone was fangirling over you, now they'll now they'll know you're down to yeah. earth. <laughs> they'll, they'll think twice. They'll think twice. <laughs> and I admire Fernanda even more now. I mean, wow, the shit that she deals with. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> oh, well, so uh, the last section would have been play TA, which is, I think, just the area where I'm reminded so much about in the redefinition of my metrics for measuring success in life, I've realized, or just for measuring life and, and its value and quality is that no matter, even if you love your job, especially if you don't, all of us need to unwrap our identity from productivity and achievement and goals and objectives and self-development. I think it's especially when you're someone like us who loves to work on ourselves and and have big revelations, it's hard to switch that off, but all of us especially creative people need something that just makes you forget what time it is. That's just for joy. That's not like I used to walk my dog and think I was resting, but I'd listen to a finance podcast and be like ticking over and being like, Oh, I rested today. Yeah. So what do you do for play to bring like your childlike sense of wonder and pass the time when you're not being sort of author Mark, speaker Mark, blogger Mark, you know, famous person, Mark, gassy Mark, like, what are you doing when you're (laughs) (laughs) just like date night or just, just unwinding? Can you read other people's books or does that make you like? Oh no, I, I I read tons, tons. And it's, um, yeah, it's, I read tons and I've got a bunch of friends who are authors and I read their manuscripts and they read mine and stuff like that. Um, yeah, my, I, I've actually, I rediscovered my, my inner gamer a number of years ago. Like Entropy's it's, back. It, he's back. And, uh, you know, I kind of gave up gaming when I started my business because you just you know, work in 16 hour days, you, you don't have time. And, and then I was traveling around the world a lot. And so I went, that was actually one of the things with Subtle Art that I, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go out and like buy a Nintendo and a PlayStation and just play a bunch of these games that I haven't had time to play in years. And, um, so yeah, it's like I love it. I still I still game like every day. That's amazing. It's awesome. Actually, last time we spoke for the business chicks thing, you were like, it's like, how's ISO been? Yeah, I've just been like playing a lot of games. Yep. Um <laughs> <laughs> like got RSI in my thumbs because I've been playing too much games. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. Well, the funny thing, like video games have kind of become 
like the same way I used to party compulsively. I think I, I now, like if I'm like stressed or having emotional problems or whatever, the, the first signal to me is that I'm playing way too many video games. That that's like, <laughs> yeah. that's like my, my, my life, the universe saying, Hey Mark, you, there's shit you're not paying attention to <laughs> put, put the <laughs> controller away. <laughs> that's like the internet blogger metaphorical version of like punching a punching bag, but you're like, I'm going to game the shit out of this game. <laughs> I do, man. I beat all the levels. <laughs> oh man, that's amazing. I mean, well done. Well done. It's 16 hours a day. I would hope that you would be beating all the levels. <laughs> yeah. My wife's not very impressed. Anybody... <laughs> yeah, she hasn't seen you in like three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, So second last question, even though you've already dished up a lot of these and now you'll wish you'd save them for last. What are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? Uh, I speak three languages. I I wrote that down. I was like, if he needs help, I'll give him a little push. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Explain how and why. Because they're very different to each other. Actually, no, they're not. Russian? Really? Oh, no, I don't speak. I don't speak Russian. Well, I speak a little bit of Russian. Um, Okay, well, you need to take that off your LinkedIn then. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I probably do. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, it is kind of a lie. Like, I, <laughs> I guess that's another interesting thing about me. So I lie on my LinkedIn profile. Um, <laughs> You're not above a resume pad. I love it. <laughs> no, so I speak, I, I should say, I speak three languages well. Like, I, I speak Spanish and Portuguese um, to like a high conversational, low fluency, um, Russian, I speak a little bit, like I can go to Russia, I can order food, I can read signs. I can kind of like, Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. But like, I can't like have a conversation in Russian. Oh, I mean, well then so. definitely take it off. I'm just going to report, report that <laughs> <laughs> afterwards. Report. <laughs> oh, man. oh, they're great. They're good ones. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> I don't, so that's too, yeah, I don't know. Video games. Um, <laughs> God, I'm trying to think of another one. Do you have pet peeves or like weird sleeping habits or like? Um, a huge pet peeve of mine is people who eat noisily. Like I. Oh no! And, and apparently, um, apparently, there's actually a word for it. Like there's, uh, there's like some Greek word for it. Like there's something like 10 percent of the population. It's almost. It's like a phobia. It's like people who smack or eat loudly like it just it's like nails on a chalkboard for me it's no it's way awful. okay well i'll keep that in mind so next time we catch up in like you know obviously next week when i'm in new york just hanging out at your place i just i'll just make sure i don't eat because i'm one of them like are you i'll eat an apple and it like reverberates around oh, the nation <laughs> how do you live with yourself i don't know what it is though well i feel like it's loud for you anyway yeah. So I don't actually, you know, like I'm enjoying the apples. So Some people, like, like I, a good friend of mine, he like smacks really loud when he chews, and he he t- he's like, I enjoy. It. He's like, it's satisfying. Like I like oh. like smacking when I like chew into something, <sighs> and I'm like, dude, that's a full psychopath. Just saying. Exactly. Like, <laughs> how do you how do you sleep at night? Seriously. How do you live with yourself? Yeah. I mean, you said you need to be able to sleep. At night, you need to be able to yeah. like, be okay with yourself. So I'm glad you keep your chewing volume to a minimum. That's great. At least Fernanda's <laughs> got that as a tick in the box. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And the last question, since I love quotes so much, what's your favorite quote? My favorite quote, well, it changes quite a bit. Oh, man, I've got to pick one. <laughs> so I'll give you two. One is comes from David Foster Wallace, and he said that you will stop worrying so much what people think about you when you realize how seldom they do. 
That's such and a good one. It's it's so I love it because it it's it sounds a little bit depressing on the surface, like <laughs> oh people don't think about me. But then you just realize how you realize how liberating that is, you know. And and it, you also it also implies that like like an obsessive concern of what other people think about you is a very subtle form of narcissism. Like it's mm. it's you're making everything about you, and it's like people don't care. Like honestly, people just really don't care. <laughs> So we've got much better you. things to do than to worry about whether your presentation sucked. Like we don't care. So life goes on. <laughs> That's on brand. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> um, and then the other one is it comes from Freud and he says that uh, in hindsight, the years of struggle will strike you as the most beautiful. Oh my gosh. What a beautiful way to end. They are two incredibly valuable quotes along with everything else that you've shared and everything in your book and every article that you publish. You've You've done some really wonderful topical ones as well lately on on uncertainty and what's going on in the world. I'm so, so grateful for your time. I'm so sorry I've run us over time. That was just like That's one fine. of the best conversations I've ever fun. had. It was, fun. <laughs> it was so much fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, I can't wait to read the next book. It's going to be good. And I, I usually hate my own stuff. <laughs> Like, it, like, like, no, it, it's like usually at this point in the process where I just finished a draft, like I'm like curled up in a corner crying, being like, I'm a fraud. Nobody's ever going to read me ever again. You know? And it's like with Will's book, I finished it and I'm like, this is awesome. This is I nailed fucking, it. Yeah. No, I, I, I did. So. <laughs> well, I cannot wait. You've come so far from self-deprecating Texan pooch. Thank you so much for joining. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I mean, sometimes someone says yes and you know there's no way you'll ever be able to express how grateful you are. If you enjoyed this too, it would be amazing if you'd share your thoughts and tag at Mark Manson and myself so we can share in some of your takeaways. This was one of those chats that literally changed the way I think, as all Mark's books have done. I hope you took some nuggets or even just a chuckle out of it too. Plus, oh my gosh, what a scoop on Will Smith. I can't wait to read the book when it comes out. I'll keep you all posted. In the meantime, have an amazing week and I hope you're seizing your yay.